Thanks, Elbert. Um, Elbert said I was, I was born in Hobo, Virginia, so I'm, I'm, I'm actually confused if I'm a southerner or not. Um, because I was born in Virginia and um, married a Memphian, and, um, but grew up and was raised in New York City. So I'm, I'm just really confused. Um, but uh, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Um, I, it's been fun to go through this pamphlet and see a lot of the same faces. And you're here on a Friday night at a missions conference. And so um, even if somebody brought you here uh, tonight, you're still here on a Friday night. You said yes. And so you care about missions. What is different, though, and what, what we need to talk about tonight is when we say the word missions, unfortunately, like most of our words in English, that they, they have different meanings to different people. When we say the word missions, some of you think foreign missions immediately, and you think um, about uh, uh, you know, going overseas, going to the ends of the earth, going to where the needs are over there, that mission, whatever mission means, mission means out there somewhere. Um, sometimes you hear the word mission inside a, a, a rescue mission, which is, um, we have one that Redeemer Lincoln Square supports called uh, um, the Bowery Rescue Mission. And that word mission is there because the mission is towards the homeless. It's uh, down on, in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. And so we think about justice, we think about mercy, we think about uh, mission in that sense. O others of you have a personal mission statement in your mind about how you're going to live your life. And so mission, it takes a, a personal connotation. So what I want to do tonight um, is, and then again on Sunday morning, uh, sorry, and then again on uh, Saturday morning, then on Sunday as well, is we want to unpack what it means to be on mission. So if you looked in your, in your pamphlet and in your packet tonight, specifically we're going to look at what does it mean to go on mission. Uh, then tomorrow morning we're going to look practically at some of the practical steps that a church does when it goes on mission. And then on Sunday, we'll try to lay out the plan of mission, but also the reasons why we don't do it. And we want to just sort of, then we'll try to triage and figure out, like, how do we actually go about uh, doing that? So, uh, again, what we're going to do this weekend is we're going to look at tonight, what does it mean to go on mission? Tomorrow, what does it look like when the church does that? And then on Sunday, what is the plan? And then how do we do it? So, tonight, what does it mean to go on mission? And let me give, start with a premise. Here's the premise we're going to look at is that the truth of the gospel is this, is God never pulls you in to Jesus, to Christianity, without sending you out. That's going to be sort of um, my premise that we're going to use this weekend, that God never pulls you in without sending you out in some way. He'll never make you a people without making you a people for others. And this starts, by the way, way back. If you go to Genesis uh, chapter 12, um, you'll see God talking to a people of God, saying, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, and then the part that everybody forgets about is the last part, which is, and you will be a blessing to all nations. Um, and that, so there is a command, there is, there is a, an imperative being given there, that that is what the people of God are supposed to be, is to be a blessing to all nations. And by the way, we can evaluate how well we've done as a people of God of being a blessing to all nations. Because you go to Revelation, what do you see around the throne? It's all the nations around the throne. So we know in the future it's going to be a place where mission has actually worked. We're assured of that in the future, and we're told that in the past, that mission means to actually bless those, uh, not, not just to be, to be blessed and, you know, and to have that, but to also be a blessing to all nations. But then there's something about mission where we are not just drawn in, but we're sent back out. And so I think the story I want to look at tonight, it's, um, uh, I think it's going to be put up on the screen um, from uh, the Gospel of John. I want to look at the very famous passage, John 4. Uh, of the, the woman at uh, the well. 
And I think what you'll see there is God draws her in, but then sends her back out. So let me read it for you, and then um, we'll pray and get started. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And uh, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food, and the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither On this mountain, nor in Jerusalem, will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for the salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming who is to who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we uh, sit here on a Friday night, I, uh, I pray that you open our hearts to, um, wherever we're coming from. Everybody's from a different background. Everybody has a different understanding of, of what mission means. I pray that you will move in our life through your scripture um, to create in us a new vision and even mission about mission to um, the peoples of the world. So I pray that you will move that in our lives specifically tonight in in your name. Amen. The three things we're going to look at tonight are to understand mission are this. We need to see that Jesus meets you where you are. He'll challenge you where you are, but he'll never leave you where you are. All right. So Jesus is going to meet you where you are. We're going to see that in the text. He is going to challenge you where you are, but he never leaves you. He never will leave you as you are. So first, Jesus will meet you where you are. And this is uh, the the first verse um, that we saw there, verse 7, where Jesus, he's traveling with his disciples. um, He's going through Samaria, which is outside Judea. He's he's outside his um, home area. This is a different race. This is a different religious group of individuals. And they leave him. He's thirsty. He shows up uh, at high noon, it says in the text, the hottest part of the day, to this well, and he's traveling, and there's no way for him to get water. So no bucket, uh, no nothing. 
but there's a single woman there, and he asks her in verse 7, will you give me a drink? And the woman replies, this is what's so interesting, basically the way she replies is, what are you doing talking to me? Right? And this is what we need to look at, is that when we first read that, usually our brains just pass right over that, okay, this is the, woman, this is the very famous passage where Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. But you, can, you have to do a little bit of background work to understand the immensity of this moment. Because when she says, how can you ask me this? this it's a, coming from a place of shock. That the first thing that we need to see, that the reason why she's in shock is because Jews and Samaritans, it's even said in our text, the Jews and the Samaritans um, don't get along. Because the Samaritans actually took bits of Jewish religion and blended it with Canaanite religion. And so the Jews looked down on the, the Samaritan individuals, not, not just as racially inferior, but religiously inferior. And so they're considered heretics in a lot of respects, so they don't talk to each other. But on top of that, the reason why she's in shock is because in this culture, it was scandalous for a man to talk to a woman, period, you know, full stop. You can't do that. But the third reason why this is such a big deal is because the Samaritan woman wasn't just a woman. She was a woman that was drawing water at high noon when nobody else was actually there. And we have to bring this up because the reason why she was there is because this was the only time she was going to be allowed socially to draw water out of that well. She could only do that because she was considered a, 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 an immoral woman, a social outcast. And so she was there um, as an immoral woman talking to a, a Jewish rabbi who would have been the first individual normally to condemn her and run the opposite direction. And so Jesus and this woman are on the wrong side of every single aspect of what today, you know, where everybody's talking about identity and, and differences, but she, they are different politically, racially, sexually, religiously, morally, every facet. They're on a different side of, of, um, of the barrier. And so that's on purpose, by the way. The reason why we're supposed to be even given to this text is because we need to see that Jesus is passing and going through and breaking the cultural and social barriers that are, being, that are built up in this context to make this relationship. And so you come to this text, I come to this text, to be honest, and you just sort of read it, and if you know it well, you're like, there it is again. But you're not supposed to do that. Every single time you're supposed to hit that text and go, wait, this doesn't happen. Right? This would never happen in a million years in, in our context. The, the way the types of people who are coming together here just doesn't work. And so she's amazed, and you should be amazed too. But this is what the, the, our first point, is Jesus meets her where she, where she is. She doesn't, he doesn't make her come to him. He goes to her. Right? He starts the conversation. He directs the conversation. When she tries to derail the conversation and change the topic, which we'll talk about and it was in the text, he, re, he refocuses it. So he's the one placing himself in her care. He creates a problem so that the conversation actually goes on. He's warm to her when everything in his training, everything in his background, everything in his experience would have told him to run the other direction. And so... Um, you, you, the, you know, the question that gets begged in my mind is, why is he so gentle? Right? Why is he so being so, so gentle in this moment? And the, I think the answer is because I think he understands, he actually un sees her heart already and knows that she's not going to like the, com the way the conversation is going to go, that she's going to squirm, that she's um, going to, when, when he starts asking questions about her goals and her life, that he knows that that's going to be really hard for her. Uh, and, and uh, quite, why? 
Um, I don't know if you've seen on YouTube or some of these TED Talks, uh, Benet Brown, who has spent her whole life studying, she's a famous sociologist, she's been studying um, what makes humanity humanity, and she actually says that some of the parts of the core of humanity is longing for connection. That what it means to be human is to long for connection, but the number one reason why we don't get that is because, in, in her mind, she says, we, because of, of shame. And shame at its core is this. It's saying, somewhere in your life, you're saying in your heart, I'm not fit for connection. I'm not fit for relationship because of this, this, whatever the shame is. And that's what we struggle with, is that deep, deep down in our lives, there's obviously, obviously a lot of other problems in our lives, but one of which is the shame that builds up over time in our life. Where, what's, what's, what shame is? Um, it's either not living up to what we have for ourselves well, last shame is not living up for what we think other people want for ourselves. So that, that both are, are avenues of shame. And so the reason why we, ch we chase after idols, the reason why we, uh, it's easier for us to get acceptance from our jobs and our careers and our family members and our kids, and we throw ourselves into these things, is because these things we feel like we can control more and we can get that connection out of. So ironically, shame is leading us into, uh, we, since we desperately want connection as humans, we go into, we throw ourselves into things that we think will bring us that connection. Our looks, our money, our kids, things that we could master that we could say, oh, well, at least I have this, and that brings us connection. Um, I'm kind of a nerd, um, as you can tell from the bio here. And uh, there was a, my, probably my favorite section of the New York Times, which I don't read the New York Times a lot, but there was a section that I used to read all the time. It was a column called the S Ethicist. And it, it, it went debunked. Apparently nobody else was reading it in 2011. Um, and the whole point of the, of the column in 2011 was people would write in problems, ethical problems. You know, I want to do this, but I know it's wrong. What do I do? Some, something like that. And he would try to ethically just solve it um, with you know, his, his words. And in 2011, in, in the Goodbye article, this is what he wrote on reflection of, of his own sort of ethics. He says, I say with some shame, which is interesting, he uses that word, I say with some shame, there has been no such gradual change in my own behavior. Writing this column has not made me even slightly more virtuous. But it should have. Instead, all it did was make me acutely conscious of my own transgressions, of the times I fell short, and it was deeply demoralizing. And I really appreciated his honesty when he wrote that, because what, what he was tasked to do was to be ethical in front and show people in a secular kind of liberal um, newspaper, hey, look how you can be ethical. And he's actually admitting, I didn't actually become more ethical, and I don't think I'm actually ethical as an individual. In fact, what I've, all I've realized is I'm actually a pretty unethical individual. I think that's the root of shame for a lot of us, is we know how we should live, and we don't live up to it. We know how we should be, and we don't actually act that way. I always, people in, in New York City, they're always like, I don't believe in a, you don't need a, a, a God to be moral. And I go, great, how's it working for you? I, I, I go to them, so you set your own morals, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. So tell me what, where your moral level is, and tell me if you actually live up to that level. And what's so fascinating is most people will, in real honesty, will admit they don't live up to their own set standard that they've given for themselves. And that brings shame. And so we're no, we're no different. I know both Christians and non-Christians, we desire to be moral, we desire to be ethical, but not if, but when we break that, um, those paradigms, that shame comes in. And so we try to live 
uh, you know, these lives and we try to get our identities through our race and our politics and our gender and our sexuality and our money. And I mean, I've already listed them all. And it makes us thirsty. It makes us hungry. It makes us desire for something more. I don't know why, but I'm on a uh, reading sort of uh, sociologist. There's another one. Uh, his name is Zygmunt Bauman. That's uh, a great name. And um, there's this other great quote from him. He says this. There is always a suspicion that one is living a lie or a mistake, that something crucially important has been overlooked, missed, neglected, left untried and unexplored, that there's a vital obligation to one's own authentic self not being met, or that some chance of unknown happiness completely different from any happiness ever experienced before has not been taken up in, at a time and are, we're bound to lose it forever. Okay, what's he saying? That, that's a fancy, you know, very intellectual way of saying that in all of us, we have FOMO. I don't know if you guys, do you guys use that word down here, FOMO, fear of messing out? FOMO means fear of missing out, that everybody, a lot of, when we were working with college kids, I, it was so hard to get people to commit to anything, like come to a missions conference on a Friday night, because maybe something better will come out, maybe something, maybe I'll get invited, or maybe something will go down, and that's, that FOMO, fear of missing out, was a driving force for a lot of individuals. And why I bring that up, why do affairs happen? I mean, there's a lot of reasons why affairs happen, but affairs happen at the end of the day because you feel like that you're missing out, that you're missing out on a relationship that will actually uh, finally fulfill you and give you what you want. Like, why do, why do, at the end of the day, why do we throw our hopes and our dreams into our kids? And we, we put them on pedestals and we, we, we live our lives through them, um, whether it's sports or academics or their, their social connections. Why are we doing that? At the end of the day, it's because we're trying to create an identity we're trying to fill those shame gaps that I think that we have in our lives um, as we construct a narrative to, that will meet us and explain us and fulfill us. Okay, what's that do with the woman at the well? Well, she's surprised that, that this man's talking to her because deep down already she knows that she's used people herself. Right? And that was alluded to, and we'll get to that eventually, but she had at least used men as a form of identity in her life. And the town looked down on her and made her feel ashamed, and she already felt shame, and now there's more shame because nobody would look her in the eye and everybody would be mean to her. Um, but Jesus, this is what you have to see. Jesus was different. Jesus looked her in the eye. Jesus engaged her. Jesus went towards her. Jesus did not do what the average individual did, which is build up more shame and guilt on them. And so notice, I think it's really important. She doesn't say, why did you ask me for a drink? She says, how? If you go back to the text, she says, how do you ask me this? What allows you to ask me this? What makes you want to ask me this, to engage in this way? And there's no other reason given, no other grounds for care, but the fact that he actually wants to be with her. That, 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 that the, the ground for him is that he actually wants to make that move. And so what we need to remember this, this, this evening is this. Jesus meets you where you are today. But this is actually a call to all Christians. Do you meet other people where they are? And I, I think Christians and non-Christians, I think we're all in the same boat in this, is I don't think we actually make, we don't make the moves. We, you know what I actually do? I do this all the time. I'll go, well, I'll talk to that person if he talks to me first. You know, if they, if, you know, if they, you know maybe I'll reach out to so-and-so, but you know, I want them to reach out to me first. And I, what is that? I'm not making a move to them. Jesus will meet you where you are, so why aren't the followers of Jesus, why aren't we doing the same thing for them? You and I can't do mission, and you won't do mission, unless you have the person of Jesus, if he's at the core of your life and you see the fact that he meets other people where they are, will you do the same thing? 
And we support other individuals who are doing that. Literally, the missionaries that we send afar are literally going to be with those individuals because they're, they, are, they are making the, the trek themselves. They're not making them come to, the, to, to that. They're not making others come to them. They are going to them. But we have to do the same thing in our lives. And so if we're far off like this woman, how dare we exclude other people who might be far off? How dare we ever say, and I get this a lot in New York, people go, well, that person's too far away from Christianity. That person will never come. That, that's, that's not what Jesus did. I mean, he, there was every reason for this, to, for this woman to be too far away, and he doesn't do that. So we shouldn't do that, not just for ourselves. You might be sitting here and say, you know what, I, 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 I sit in these circles, I come to mission conferences on Friday nights, but I don't, know if I, I don't know if I have this relationship that I need to have with Jesus. You can't count yourself out, you can't count other people out. That's how to get over shame too, by the way. Benet Brown would say, the way you get over shame is you need vulnerability, but you can only have vulnerability if you know it's a safe place to be vulnerable. How do you know that you have a safe place to be vulnerable? Because Jesus looked at you in your sin and said, I still want you. I still want to be with you. That the, the, the purpose of the cross is Jesus dying on it for those who rejected him saying, I'm, I'm to make the move towards you, I have to do this. And so uh, he comes to everyone the same way and allows us to be vulnerable. You and I won't be vulnerable with our shame with each other or with him unless first we know that we, it's a safe place to be vulnerable. And you can only have that if you see him dying on the cross for you bringing you closer to him. And so, I guess, first question I want to ask for this, part, for this part is, what are the reasons why you don't come to him? And what are the reasons why you don't go to others? Because I want you to, you have to do a self-reflection, introspection on that, and ask yourself, what is it? Because if we can be vulnerable, why don't we be? If we can make the moves towards other people, a lot of times, you know what my New Yorkers say? They go, oh, I don't have the time, I don't have, this, I don't have the resources, I don't have the money, I don't have the space. It, they, they'll come up with an excuse, but that, what that means is they don't feel full enough with the love of Jesus to actually say, I can go out and go and do. And it's as it's, it's simple as that. So whatever the, the answers that you're going to give before you even give them, they're not going to be valid because you can't ask Jesus why you're here. We already know why. He's there for you. It's how. How can he be there for you? And I, I think the, to ask him that question, that brings us to our second point. And that's the challenge that Jesus gives her, right? The first point is he, Jesus meets you where you are so you can always go out to other people and meet them where they are. But then he challenges you as well, just like he challenges this woman. Look at the, this, this, uh, this text again. When he says to her, um, give me a drink, she says, how can you give me a drink? You know, if I was Jesus, you know what I would have said? <laughs> because I'm God. <laughs> you know, and he actually does that, by the way. He gets there in, in the text, he says, I am he, right? But he doesn't start with that. And that's an important thing you need to say. Instead, by the way, this happens to the Christian all the time. Come believe in Jesus because he is who he says he is. There's, you just go out and say it. And I think all the missionaries here can, well, if you sit with them and talk to them, they'll, they'll tell you, you can't lead with that. Because people aren't ready for that yet, just yet. And, and Jesus actually emulates that and shows us when he doesn't start with, <laughs> I'm God. He actually starts with um, this, this image of water, Right? He starts with this image of water which, where he says, if you knew what I really have, you wouldn't be, I wouldn't be asking you for water, you'd be asking me for water. Here's the problem with water. Um, we live in America, 2019. Most of us, I believe, have running water. I doubt most people have felt the thirst that um, these people felt 2,000 years ago. You've been thirsty. Uh, you, know, you, you even have ads, Sprite, Obey Your Thirst. You, you got... But you don't really know thirst until 
there is, all you see is desert, all there is is parched land, and there is not one drop of water anywhere near. These people would have known water as life. Water equaled life. Didn't equal refreshment. It didn't equal pour it on my head. It was too valuable. It was, um, water meant life. And so when Jesus comes and says, um, I've come to bring you living water, it's actually a double emphasis because water already meant life. So when he says living water, he's really saying living life or life life. What I have to offer you is double life or um, life life for you that will not just satisfy you like a physical need, it will satisfy you on a personal and spiritual level. And that's what the image means. But you know, by the way, if you don't think you really understand it because you don't, because you never really thirsted, she didn't either, interestingly. Because immediately in verse 11, she's like, oh, great, living water. Hmm, now I finally don't have to show up at this well anymore and be... Per- and all she, she placed Jesus' offer of, of you know, perfection and paradise and uh, truth and, and love and everything, she fitted into the one little need that she had, which was, I just don't want people to be mad at me anymore and, and look down on me. And so if I can get like a stream of water, like running water, that'd be great. That's, that's, so she kind of understands it, but not, not really. Because she, all she goes to is the painful part of her life. And she probably imagined that it could help her current issues where you know, she can get away from the, the glances of those in the, in the village. But that's missing it. And so before you say, well, you know, how could she have missed the truth of living water? You need to, we need to situate ourselves that actually we're not so good at that either. That um, you know, when we first hear Jesus, uh, we immediately actually usually put him inside our own lives and see how he could fulfill our own goals. What do I mean by that? Uh, um, I think we come to Jesus not as king. We come to him as consultant. We come to him as doctor. We come to him as counselor. Help me in this little area of my life over here because now I can actually get what I need. But don't come into this little area over here because that might be troublesome and you might really um, hurt me. So we want Jesus if and only if he can fit into my current paradigm, if he can solve my problems at the moment. And I think that's very similar to what she was doing. Let me give you an example of this. Um, Some of you are like, I finally make it if I can finally have be successful in my career. And you know what you do? This is how your prayers go. Uh, dear Jesus, you know, I, I really need to get the, be successful in my career and make it. And it's just really, I, just help me launch my career and then I'll be all right and then things will be great. And please. If, you're, if maybe, some of you are not career people, maybe it's family. You say, dear Jesus, just, I just love my family so much and I just really care for them. And you know how much, and you love family too because you made family. So please give me a great family and help my family. Amen. And you, you will apply Jesus into that little, you know, you know, sphere and sector, but you don't really let him come into the rest of it. And because Jesus is actually, when he's saying, I have life, life, he's saying, I have something that will bring you a whole new meaning that won't crush you, that won't drain you, that won't puff you up or deflate you. I have a whole new meaning here, and she kind of misses it. And that's the challenge. It's the challenge to her, but you know what? It's the challenge to us as well. Because Jesus is saying, I have something so indispensable, so essential, so much that you need. It will get, it's a need that you have spiritually that you actually might understand when it comes to physical thirst. But it's so much more than that. So what does he do? He goes after her in verse 16, which is really funny because she goes, yeah, okay, what do you mean by water, water? And then water, 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 by the way, go bring me your husband. Which, by the way, at first feels a little discombobulating. It's like, wait a second, what does water have to do with husbands? 
And what he's doing is he's going down and he's realizing that she doesn't get it, so he goes to the source. When he says, you need to bring me your husband, and she says, I don't have no husband, and he says, you're right, you've had multiple husbands, and the one living with you now is not your husband. Um, that doesn't just mean you're a moral outcast. What he's trying to point out is not that you broke the law of traditional culture. He's asking her, why? Why have you gone that direction? And the reason why she's gone that direction is because she has been going to those husbands in her life as the source of water. She had been drinking from the wrong well. And he wanted to kind of reveal that to her. And so what he's trying to do is he's saying, hey, stop trying to drink water from the wrong places. If you want it from me, you have to stop trying to get it from the fountain of male relationships or approval or affirmation. That's what he's doing. Um, have you ever seen that, uh, the movie um, Tom Hanks? The, I think it's like he's shipwrecked. I don't know. I forgot the title. Ship, maybe it's called Shipwrecked. What is it? Yes, Castaway. Thank you. I was way off. Um, but uh, there, there's this great scene when he's, he's so thirsty and he's trying to get water from a coconut. And he's banging it and he's trying to break it. And he finally opens it after like, it looked like you know, days. And he gets like two drops. And you're like, wow, that's a lot of effort for like two drops of water. And it really resonated with me though because Jesus is saying that's like us trying to go after water, the waters of our life. He's saying, I'm offering a well of ever-present, perfect, pristine, living water, and you're going after coconuts trying to bang them open to get like maybe something out of them. And probably not really efficiently, and probably not really well. And so I want us to look at ourselves. In, our, in this room, what are the sources that you are going to right now for water that you think might be living water but isn't really? Because what, are, what Jesus is saying is, is whatever Christianity is about, it's not clean up your life, be a good person, try hard. That's not it. right? Because the necessary step to get living water from him is to first analyze the sources that you and I are going for first. Because that's what he made her do, and that's what he's going to make us do. Is what are those sources? Is it men? Is it approval? Is it comfort, control, power? I mean, and there's all different differentiations there. My wife is control. I'm comfort. Right? I'm fine if I have no control. Just, just give me comfort. My wife's like, I don't care about comfort. I just want to be in control. Right? There's all different versions for all of us. But those are the sources that we're drinking from, and it's keeping us from actually seeking real living water. And that's the challenge. So Jesus says, come as you are. The challenge is uh, you know, th that you, you, know, you were... So Jesus says, here, come as you are. He challenges you where you are for your own good. And then finally, last point is he doesn't leave you where you are. And what we need to see here is um, she is clearly impressed. Very, she uses flattery. She goes, oh, you're a great prophet, great guy. Let me show you now a theological conundrum I'm having over here. Which is actually, I, I, I find so, it, finds, it gives me so much joy to see that. Because it's, it's kind of how we always do things. That sounds nice. That's really great. This is amazing. Look over here. Let's talk about this. As soon as something gets close to actually hitting home, to you actually needing to change, there's a distraction. And by the way, Americans, we love distraction. Let's go on social media and see what we can actually... There's a problem over here. Let's talk about that. Let's not like... Let's turn on the radio. I don't want to spend time in my own thoughts. Ooh. That is, as soon as introspection shows up, we move the other direction. And she does the same thing. 
And she says, hey, let's talk about, uh, you know, the fact that, you know, you make, you Jews want us to worship in the temple. We worship on these highest places. What do you think? Let's talk about that. And Jesus says, does he say, hey, that's a distraction? Actually, I find it really comforting also that Jesus doesn't just go, ah, I'm done with you. I can't talk to you. You're just, no, what does he do? He says, all right, you want to talk about worship? Let's talk about worship. So he actually follows her line of thought. And in verse 21 and verse 23, there's a, there's a phrase that he um, utters twice that whenever you see that repetition in the Bible, you should always go, hmm, what's that mean? The repetition is, the hour is coming. The hour is coming. He says it twice there. And what you need to know is in the book of John, that's a reference to Jesus' death. It shows up in John 2, 4, 5, 12, 16, 17, on and on and on. And when Jesus references his hour, he's referencing his death. And he's actually saying, you want to know the answer to your worship problem? Here's the answer. The answer to worship, the worship problem is that you're still getting living water from the wrong sources. And so the hour has to come for you to be changed. And the hour is my death. And so the, reason, the way that you will actually drink living water and actually for you to have your thirst quenched is I have to be thirsty. For you to have life, I have to have death. For you to have change in your life, I have to go through death itself and die for you. And so he's referencing his own death by pointing to the time when actually he isn't just physically and um, individually thirsty, but cosmically. On the cross, you know, the famous line, he quotes Psalm 23, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's the only part that's recorded, but he's a rabbi, he's memorized all of Psalm 23. If you skip down later on, you know what was on his, his, his mind was a later verse that says this, I am poured out like water, my strength is dried up, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, you lay me in the dust of death. And what Jesus is referencing there is he's saying, this is what's happening to me. I am dried out, I have no hydration so that you can get hydration. I am thirsty so that you can have real living water in your life. And so you need to go back through that text and can Jesus is referencing where she's casually saying, well, the Messiah will one day explain it to me. He shows up and says, by the way, that's me. And the way you're going to understand this is knowing that I have done this for you. That, I, that you're distracting yourself with these other waters, so I'm going to have to give myself for you. And she still doesn't even know it. She still doesn't get it. And he's, and he's still doing this, which, which, which is so comforting for you and me when we don't really get it. And here's what's so interesting is right after that, there seems to be a change in her life. It's as if the penny drops. She realizes there's no way to lose that love. She finally gets it. And what happens? She goes, this is really interesting. No. Immediately she leaves. And she goes. This is verse 28. She goes and tells other people. So here's how I want to end. How do you know if you actually have this in your life? How do you know if you have living water? How do you know if you actually are going on mission? One, do you talk to other people? She feels like the natural, represent, the natural effect of what Jesus did in her life is to tell other people about it. Right? So she goes, and by the way, how does she tell people? Does she say, hey, memorize these 10 things, do these ethical codes, try this, try that? No, she goes, come and see. She, it, it was a relational move, not even an intellectual one. It was relational and emotional probably and personal. And that is how you know is that do you have a sense in your life that you need to express and tell and care and love and be on mission for other people? That's that. That's the whole point for this conference, is that you need to understand that mission isn't just out there. It starts in here with your life being changed and moved. So come and, basically, it's, it's come and see. But, but secondly, it's not just come and see. It's come and see the man who told me everything I ever did, which is really fun. 
Come and see everything. Let me just show you. Here's all the junk that you probably were making fun of me and looking down on me about, but now I'm just going to own up to it and actually tell you about it. So why, how could she do that? How could she be vulnerable? Because she felt so secure and loved and cared for in the person of Jesus that it didn't matter what they thought of her anymore. What if we actually didn't think about what would they think about? I, mean, I think so many in New York, I don't know about, this is probably the same here in Jackson. I don't tell other people because what, what do they think bad about me? That means you're still more raptured by, enraptured by them and how they might see you versus how you think he sees you. And that would, that would change you, that she's saved by grace, she accepts me no matter what. And so, yeah, this is all I've done. Here, let me show you. Here's the claim uh, that, of what I've done with other husbands. And by the way, it was true. Lastly, he doesn't just, she doesn't just say, come and see. She doesn't just say, come and see what um, he has revealed to me and, and told me everything I've ever done. Who does she say it to? She says it to the very people who were her adversaries. She goes to the very people who were probably against her and didn't want to be anywhere near her. And she couldn't stop herself. So whoever the other is in your life, like the people you don't want to actually talk to, that's the people who probably you should be talking to. It's really powerful. So despite how they treated her, despite the fact that they've done this to her, you can go on mission and you can send other, others on mission if you have this in your life. So this has to be the basis. We're going to talk about it more on uh, Saturday morning. We're going to talk about it more on Sunday. But you will only go on mission to the degree that you get this in your life. Come, all ye who are thirsty, for I will give you rest. That is what we have in the person of Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, um, this is a text that we might have seen a lot. But we need to see that this is the basis of all change, not in our lives personally, but all change that will happen in this world as well. As we see ourselves all on mission together, all different roles, all in different places, all in different spaces, but all doing it together. And I pray for Redeemer Presbyterian Church that we will catalyze this, um, this sense in our heart that we can't stop, can't stop, won't stop how um, you've been in our lives. I pray that we will delight and sense a warmth and a touch and a care when you didn't push us away, when you saw all the dirt and the gunk. You didn't say, forget it. You said, I'm all in. And I pray that we would ha- that would move us to the degree that we could be that in other people's lives. We pray these things in your name. Amen.